Senator Berger weighs in on abortion. A residency dispute heads to the State Board of Elections, and President Biden cancels some student debt. This is the Politics Podcast from WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. A happy Friday to you. Glad to have you a long time to review the week in state politics and here for our discussion are Rob Schofield, director of the Progressive NC Policy Watch, and Clark Reamer, chief of staff to Republican Statehouse Representative Jason Sain. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Glad to be here. On Tuesday, Senate leader Phil Berger spoke with reporters. He touched on Medicaid, the Josh Stein saga, upcoming Leandra litigation before the state Supreme Court, as well as elective abortions and what the legislature might do should it have supermajorities come January. Berger says he would not support a total ban like what we've seen in Mississippi or Louisiana or prosecution of expectant mothers, adding that after the first trimester is when government has an interest in protecting the life of the unborn. A day later, the governor effectively called out Berger on Twitter, saying he was a liar and urging people to vote like their lives depended upon it. In the wake of Roe being overturned, abortion obviously a major issue as we head toward uh, the November midterm. Whose comments were more surprising this week? Rob? Well, I I mean, I think the Democrats are just hoping that Berger and other Republican leaders just keep talking about it, because every time they do, it seems to help get a few more independents and GOP women who or pro-choice at their hearts to vote against the idea that of giving uh, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore supermajorities. I mean, it's um, I, frankly, I'm surprised uh, that he that that Senator Berger even raised it because in Washington, Republicans are running away from this issue. They've clearly made the decision that this is a loser issue. It has mobilized and energized Democrats. Uh, we saw it again this week in some of the primary elections around the country. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm not surprised that they're going to that when this issue comes up, that Democrats are going to say, yeah, look and see what what's at stake this fall. And um, and uh, and and I suppose I'm not surprised that Berger maybe I guess in some sense is trying to take a slightly more moderate position than many members of his caucus. But, you know, state after state uh, controlled by Republicans is literally outlawing abortion and threatening prison to people who perform them. It just happened in Tennessee this week. Our next door neighbor. So um, I don't know if there's anything terribly surprising about either comment, but uh, I do think the Democrats hope the Republicans keep making statements like this. Clark, I've got a follow up for you, but do you want to weigh in on the, the surprise or, or, or lack of surprising element uh, in, in this story this week? Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't surprised at all by Senator Berger's comments. I've said every time this topic has come up between me and Rob that the General Assembly is going to have a discussion about this and that I expect that there will be a discussion about you know, 12 weeks, first trimester, second trimester, um, looking at exceptions. Senator Berger opened the door to having some exceptions for health of the mother and other other issues. So I'm not as surprised at all by his comments. What I am surprised at and what I would uh, challenge the governor on is, you know, Senator Berger has been the pro tem for 12 years. He's known for nothing if not being brutally honest about what he is doing to suggest that he is lying about where his beliefs are is frankly incredulous to me um, because he's, it's not what he does. Let me jump in with a couple of follow-ups here. One, uh, just to note or touch back on something Rob said, he said he was surprised Berger brought this up. Berger didn't bring this up for the record. I was there and the reporters brought it up and, and there were several questions. And this was as detailed as I've seen Berger get on the issue of abortion, the, the prospect of potential 
uh, legislation. Uh, and it was, I don't want to call it an awkward moment, but so often these moments are scripted. You, you almost have a, a real sense of what someone's going to say. And there were a couple of long pauses for Berger. He was, I, he, he was, I thought, straightforward with, with the questions he got. Um, but for him to s- acknowledge that the, the state um, has, has an interest at the end of the first trimester, I personally had not heard him say anything like that publicly. And I guess I want to loop that into into a follow up because, Clark, we have talked about this issue before. But in recent weeks, I've asked both of you, hey, is there a pathway to to something of a compromise? The 12 to 14 week period, which is what is common throughout Europe, which would cover a vast majority of abortions. And it, it could be something of a you know dangerous word, nasty word compromise here between the right and the left. And neither of you really nibbled on that. And I haven't gotten the impression that the legislature has much interest in an after the first trimester law in North Carolina. But Berger's comments this week signal that, that that's where this is going. Clark, how does that square with with you? You've talked about, you know, your personal belief is that uh, life begins at conception and there are plenty of other Republican legislators, staff members, uh, strategists, consultants, uh, people who I've talked to who also believe that. So uh, square for me where you and others are at and with what Berger said this week. Well, I, I think Berger's looking at the political reality of a state that is a, a purple state. It is, um, you know, this is not a clear issue. And as you've said before, there, there's the majority polls and polls indicate the majority of people in the state are, you could call them pro, pro-choice, but they also don't really like abortion. They're fine with many restrictions. So you get these weird polling, um, you know, results where the majority of people say, yes, we want to have some legal abortions, but no, we don't want late-term abortions. No, we don't want sex selection abortions. No, we we don't want to, you know, we're okay with a tw- with stopping at 12 weeks. So I, I think they're trying to square what is a hard personal choice, what is a hard public policy choice with political reality. And, and I think that's okay. I think that's what we should be doing. I think that's what what we've been talking about on here for weeks. So I, I think that's, that's you know, Senator Berger has always been a thoughtful legislator, a thoughtful leader of our majority, and I'm happy he's here to, uh, you know, and I think we're going to have a discussion with it. I think the, that you've seen from Speaker Moore, he's a, a little more aggressive on this issue. He's he's going to be pushing the, the pro-life um, and, and protection from the unborn uh, a little more than Senator Berger, and we're going to have a conversation about that in the General Assembly. and. Um, hopefully end up in a compromise that um, and a law that will be just and fair. But I think the one thing you won't see is the sort of draconian or, you know, heavy hitting laws that Rob has so often uh, said that we're going to pass. I never said we're going to pass. I'm very worried about it. Obviously, it's a, we've had these bills introduced from Republican lawmakers. We've seen them passed in many states across the country. We, as I say, it just went into effect in Tennessee this week, which is just a frightening situation, just, to, you know, our, our western border. I, I really think that uh, the likelihood of Democrats and Republicans coming together to pass some sort of compromise legislation is not going to happen. Um, and Democrats are going to fight like heck to avoid uh, Republicans regaining supermajorities. And if they retain the ability to sustain a gubernatorial veto, we're not going to have new abortion restrictions in North Carolina, and nor should we. Um, the, the reality is that even the law that we have now that has gone into effect, as we discussed last week, 
is even though there were maybe 30 post 20 week abortions in our in our state in uh, the most recent year that we have statistics for these are all situations that are horrific traumatic situations nobody likes abortion nobody wants to have an abortion these are very difficult decisions that are made between a woman and her physician and quite often their religious um, uh, counselor uh, or, or or pastor and it's just it's just not something that the state has any interest in uh, inserting itself into. Uh, and and that's been, that was the law in this country for a half a century. Uh, it, it still should be the law. And um, so I think, and I think eventually, and it will be the, it is the law for most Americans still in most states. I think we will be headed that direction over time. But I also think it's, we, we shouldn't kid ourselves that the people who are pushing back in the other direction, like Clark, I respect his position, but they want to take us to a very extreme position where, you know, a tiny se- smear, uh, collection of cells is more important than a living, breathing human being. And so um, that's that's the debate we're having right now. We've discussed this a lot in recent weeks. I didn't plan on discussing it this week, but then when the most powerful person in North Carolina politics speaks, it's perhaps worth getting some some insight and, and scuttlebutt on. So let's move to the northeastern portion of the state where a candidate for the state Senate has been accused of not living in the district in which she is running. That's required by law. Valerie Jordan wants to serve a district that stretches from I-95 to the Atlantic Ocean, but her Republican opponent says that Jordan doesn't live in the district and that he has the pictures to prove it. So this week, the Currituck County Board of Elections, in a bipartisan vote, agreed with that Republican, Bobby Hannig, and referenced the issue to the full state board of elections. This notably is a district that Republicans likely need to win if they're going to get this coveted supermajority. Rob, just how big of a deal and what do you make of the residency challenge of Valerie Jordan in the state Senate district? I suppose it would be a big deal if if the Democrats are forced to come up with a new candidate. Um, you know, how what are we? A couple months out from the start of early voting, so you know. And I, from what I gather, she's a strong candidate, so that would be a big deal. I, this seems to happen every election. I mean, we always have these challenges. You know, I think it's worth noting that we have a lot of state lawmakers who have for a long time effectively lived in Raleigh. Uh, we have people who have homes in different places. Jordan. Uh, argues, I think, persuasively that Warrington's her home. She talks about that's where she prays. That's where she hosts family dinners. I don't know. I mean, I this will be something for the, the finders of fact to make a determination. If the local boards made that determination, there's a process to go forward and, you know, figure it out. Uh, but I mean, I think it is, you know, I mean, let's be honest. There's a huge number of state lawmakers who represent districts in the General Assembly and, frankly, don't spend a whole lot of time there. Senator Berger himself, you know, has had a townhouse here in Raleigh. He made a lot of money off using campaign funds. So I don't know. I mean, it's be a big deal, I suppose, if there's a new candidate that has to be selected. But let, let me hammer down a little bit, Rob, just because everybody's jumping off the off the roof doesn't make jumping off the roof uh, the best thing to do. And Senator Berger is in leadership. He, by, I think, nature, is going to have to spend a lot more time in Raleigh. He has a staff. I mean, State lawmakers, as a reminder, are, are part-time people who part-time employees who make less than fourteen thousand dollars a year. If Valerie Jordan doesn't live in Warren County or doesn't spend the majority of time in her district, the law says she she shouldn't serve that or she can't serve that district. Doesn't that kind of settle? Well, it? I, well, sure. If that's what they make, I mean, I guess you've already said they've made that that local folks made that determination. If that's confirmed, then that's what it is. So, I mean, I st- I personally think. You know, I think it, it, 
I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense as a practical matter, as the way our our elected officials serve in Congress, that we all know they're members of Congress who haven't, you know, they visit their, I don't think Elizabeth Dole ever really lived in North Carolina when she was a U.S. senator. So we know that this is a phenomenon in politics, uh, but, you know, there's there's a game to be played, and, and obviously both sides are going to try to seek every advantage they can when it comes to this kind of stuff. But, you know, this is, this is a person who obviously was born and raised and lived there. I gather, you know, professionally she spent some time in Raleigh in recent years, but, you know, I, the facts will... They'll fall where they where they may. I guess the the finders of fact will figure it out. You know, sadly, I expect that the state board of election is going to go ahead and um, dismiss this case, if nothing else, because they're a partisan entity. The governor worked very hard to ensure that the state board of elections would remain a partisan entity when we offered a um, offered a law to make it a bipartisan board. But you know, I think really the shocking fact here is that the Currituck board of elections, which is a three two Democratic majority. The chairman actually switched, voted against his partisan interest and said, you know, there's enough evidence to uh, say that Valerie Jordan did not live in the district. You know, the the deposition that she gave was brutal. She gets her Amazon packages at uh, what she's claiming is her daughter's house here in Raleigh. I don't, you know, I've got Amazon Prime. I have things shipped to my parents' house, to my house, all over the place. But I certainly don't have them shipped to where I don't live or where I'm not at. Um, you know, I, I would claim it's not just uh, Representative Hannock who's saying that she doesn't live there. Her own deposition gives huge weight to the fact that um, she doesn't live there. You can argue that maybe we should like, you know, for Congress, we don't, we have a law that says you don't have to live in the district. Um, we would probably, Representative Alma Adams would probably not have been able to be reelected had we had that law or had a law that said you had to live in the district when she was uh, redistricted a few years ago. What's going to happen? You know, I, I fully expect that the State Board of Election will fulfill their partisan duty. Governor Cooper has already come out and signaled that he fully expects that these, this case will be dismissed. Um, I, I'm waiting for the hostage video where they are, are, are blinking, help me. Um, but, but, but they're going to do what, what they've been told by the governor and their, their appointee, and they're going to dismiss this case, and she's going to run, and we'll see what the voters say. And, you know, like Rob said, you know, the voters in North Carolina have traditionally not been extremely friendly to people who do this, and we'll see whether they do like they did to Elizabeth Dole. But I think it's worth pointing out that the State Board of Elections, actually, the vast majority of the things they do, they do unanimously. They recently took some action unanimously that uh, some Republicans were unhappy about. So I'm not so convinced that it's, you know, I think it's a little bit disrespectful to the members of the board who I think believe that they actually consider the facts and are and are serious um finders of fact and take their job very seriously. So, I, you know, just like the folks in the Currituck board, good for the, for the local Democrat who thought it looked the other way. Well, good for him. That's that's what their, their job is. Hope I, you know, I, I actually am not quite so cynical about all this. Well, I, I've just watched the Green Party case go on where they uh, uh, dismissed uh, the Green Party's attempt to get on the ballot, which, of course, will be bad uh, for Democrats in a, in a partisan fashion right up until the lawsuit got to discovery. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. All right. One more topic, guys. Uh, President Joe Biden canceled $10,000 of student loan debt for millions of Americans this week, $20,000 for those who hold Pell Grants. This comes after months of jockeying over just how much relief to provide by the White House. Clark, the government provides money all the time to various folks in the form of tax breaks and uh, PPP loans, which were uh, much discussed this week. 
the level of vitriol from the right coming out of this decision this week struck me as pretty significant. Why the vitriol that we saw this week? Well, I think you have a couple issues here. First of all, as Nancy Pelosi has said earlier this year, this is not an action that the, the president can take on his own. Um, I fully expect this to be challenged and probably overturned by the courts. Secondly, it's not a debt forgiveness. It's a debt transfer. It's a debt transfer for people who went to higher education who are mostly on track to be high earners over the next five, ten years to people who did not um, make those choices. You're, you're, it's literally you're taking... Um, people like me who went to a private school and forgiving our debts and giving it to my garbage man and my plumber. You know, that's, that, that, that strikes many of us as fundamentally unfair. So, and, and lastly, it doesn't get to the fundamental problem of school affordability, which I think is a huge issue. And I agree with President Biden that it is a huge issue. But what we're here, what we're doing here, what President Biden has done is putting a Band-Aid over the current crisis without taking any actions to affect fundamental college affordability. And I think that strikes people as we're going to be in the same place five, ten years down the road where there's still going to be massive debt that people are taking out for higher education. And unless you do something to affect fundamental affordability, then this is really just a um, a, a sop to what is probably based in I want to hear from Rob, but let me jump in quickly and, and push back a little bit, Clark. I, I don't have numbers at my fingertips. I would be surprised if any significant number of folks who are collecting, uh, working for the sanitation department and or working as plumbers have college degrees or that a great number of them even went to college. That's not to say they couldn't have or they shouldn't have, but I, I don't, I, th- that seems like a bit of a stretch just to my ear. They didn't go to college, but what, but what they will have to do is assume this debt because, you know, they didn't get rid of this debt. It is now taken over by the federal government, which means every taxpayer, which all these people are, are taxpayers. They're going to have to assume this debt. It's something like $2,300 per taxpayer that they who didn't agree to take out these loans, they who didn't get the benefit of getting, going to college, they now have to assume this debt. They didn't make those choices. And I think they have a right so, to be angry So I apologize. It. I obviously did not. I, I didn't hear what you were saying in my head. So let me ask you this then. If there is a point of frustration there, which I, I, I now understand you, I hear what you're saying. Uh, what is your level of frustration that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Getz and a dozen other members of Congress took out PPP loans during the pandemic? Those loans were forgiven. And those loans were hundreds of thousands of dollars up to I read a, about a congressman from Western Pennsylvania this week who has multi car used car dealerships near Pittsburgh. He was forgiven like multi millions of dollars in loans. Is your level of, of, of frustration the same, less, more? And, and why? Well, let, let's remember, they didn't choose to take out these PPP loans. They had these PPP loans because the government said your business, well, they chose to take them, but they didn't choose to be in that situation. The government says, said your business is shut down. You cannot operate. We're having a shutdown order. Fundamentally, it was a taking by the government of their business. So when the government says you can't operate your business, of course, the government should come in and give some sort of relief to those business owners. Remember, 70 percent of PPP loans had to go to employees, had to pay employees payroll 
to keep people employed during the pandemic when we were shut down. This wasn't going into their pockets. This wasn't helping them. This wasn't something most of them wanted to do. They wanted to operate their businesses. Rob, a two-part question for you. Was $10,000 and $20,000 when you include the Pell Grant enough? And what is your level of concern, considering that this action doesn't do anything, as I understand it, to fix the institutional problem of rising costs at public universities and community colleges? I agree. It's a huge problem. It's a gigantic problem, and it's been greatly exacerbated over the last several years by the fact that we've had these predatory for-profit colleges who have exploited the stories are just unbelievable and the amounts of money that these co- like Trump University who have just <laughs> ripped off borrower after borrower with these ridiculous promises of all the wonderful things that would happen to them and then it turned out it wasn't even an education that they got at some of these places um it, you know we the Pell grants have basically been flat but the cost of higher education's effectively tripled as we know in the last 40 years that's a huge problem i don't think president biden is going to be able to solve that with an executive order and the fact remains that As we know, and we've seen in so many areas, Biden has limited tools at his disposal. He's got a deeply divided Congress. He's got Republicans who would, come on, let's be honest, would would find something to complain about if he announced a cure for cancer next week. I mean, there is no interest whatsoever in working with this administration to get anything positive done. So he's got limited tools at his disposal. I know a lot of progressives are actually very frustrated. They think this doesn't go far enough. It doesn't provide the kind of relief that's really necessary. It's like a lot of places where the president's kind of had to try to steer a middle course. Um, There was a great column actually in the New York Times, I don't know if it was either yesterday or today, that Paul Krugman wrote about why the, the amount of money we're actually talking about in terms of impacting inflation or impacting the economy is very, very minimal. So it's it's necessary relief. It's going to help a lot of people. It's not going to solve the problem. Clark's right about that. I do think we need a serious discussion about the cost of college education in the United States. Um, But, you know, that's not something President Biden's going to be able to solve with the, you know, with the with a signature on a, on a piece of paper. Rob, you said some progressives don't think this goes far enough. Are you one of them? And what would you have liked to have seen the levels offered up by Biden? No, I, I don't know that I am. I mean, I think that um, I'm realistic to, enough to understand that the incredibly uh, tight squeeze that he's he's in here. He's got it. He's got to try to do what he thinks he can get done, what he thinks will actually survive court challenges that I'm sure Clark's uh, friends and allies will bring. Uh, he's trying to do his best to, as I mean, Joe Biden clearly has made middle class, helping middle class folks sort of his, one of his uh, signature uh causes during his presidency. And this is another effort in that, in that direction. But it's, it's, it's not going to solve the problem. It's going to make a difference. It's going to make a, a step in the right direction. But, you know, that's, that's the reality of the politics that we're involved with right now in America. Clark, a final word? Well, let me push back. Yeah, let me push back on a couple of things. First of all, Rob, you know, Rob said that uh, Republicans would go against Biden if he announced a cure for cancer. Well, let me mention the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, uh, the recently passed gun control. Three bills that not just some Republicans, but Republican senators from this state voted for. Um, so the idea that there's going to that there's no path for bipartisan compromise on issues in this Congress is, you know, frankly, not what we're seeing in actual experience. And then let me also I recommend higher education. Well, and, and let me also point out that it was in this state, in North Carolina, where we passed NC Promise. The Republican majority passed NC Promise to lower the cost of several state schools. Against, 
a huge amount of caterwauling from partisan Democrats that it was a designed attack against historically black colleges and universities. We actually had to decrease the program. It's been massively successful at fundamentally allowing people who go to college who could not otherwise and allowing them to do so in an affordable way. That's the sort of policy we should be looking at. I would encourage the Biden administration to follow our Clark, lead. I totally agree. We should be investing vastly more in higher and K-12 through education and lowering tuition, uh, in t- not uh, uh, cutting university investments, which we've been doing over the last several years, cutting salaries, uh, making our universities less competitive. At the bottom line, the bottom line solution to what ails the, and which pr- which is driving up the cost of higher education is the failure of public institutions of state and local governments to invest necessary resources. And that is traceable to the fact that we have given so many tax breaks to the wealthy. If we use some of the surplus we've got to invest in our schools and invest in our higher education, drive down the cost of tuition across the board, not just in a select number of universities, I would be all on board with that. Maybe that's some common ground. And I might, if I had a bell, I'd ring it right now. I might just cut it when you guys said, I agree, I agree, we agree, we agree. Just head into the weekend on agreement. I'll offer two things to end here. One, Congress has been sneaky productive the last nine months. And that has been a bipartisan effort. They've done some big pieces of legislation. Couldn't have happened without Republicans, but it has happened. And some significant bills have moved forward here in the last few months in Congress. And number two, as to the issue of funding education, next week, the Leandro cases before the state Supreme Court. We will talk about that, I assume, I suspect, a week from Friday. Clark Reamer is a former chair of the North Carolina Young Republicans. Rob Schofield is director of NC Policy Watch. Guys, enjoy your weekend. Y'all take care. You too, and everyone listening. I mentioned the Leandro case, and there will be another significant chapter in that decades-long litigation. It lands before the state Supreme Court next Wednesday. We'll have plenty for you about that topic on our website, on our radio station, in the podcast feeds. Come next week. Make sure you're checking out WUNC.org and also, of course, 91.5 FM. Thanks for downloading and subscribing to this politics podcast. If you missed our episode earlier in the week, give it a listen, please. And thank you. My colleague Rusty Jacobs has a couple of interviews, one with Paul Shoemaker, a Republican strategist, the other with Michael Bitzer, a professor of uh, political science at Catawba College. The topic of the Wednesday podcast is all about the midterms, strategizing issues, how to get those voters specifically unaffiliated voters to the polls this November. And the polls do open now, if you can believe it, in less than two months. Early voting begins in late October. That'll do it for this week. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. My name is Jeff.